वेलकम टू द हिंदूज पॉडकास्ट ओके सो हेलो डॉक्टर अभिनव चंद्रचूद एंड मेरा सूद थैंक यू फॉर ज्वाइनिंग द हिंदूज पार्ले पॉडकास्ट एंड थैंक यू फॉर मेकिंग टाइम फॉर दिस हाय 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 इट्स ग्रेट इट्स ग्रेट टू बी ऑन द पॉडकास्ट थैंक यू फॉर हैविंग मी श्योर um so i'll start with the first question that i think is uh, and i'll also lay some background and some context um so as everybody knows the past few weeks have been amongst the most polarizing in our recent memory and it's um it's leading up to what's already looking like a very vitriol filled campaign for the delhi elections um there've been <laughs> several instances that have you know stretched the envelope of what we consider and define as freedom of expression um you know on the one hand we have FIRs being filed against students for chanting azadi against someone like Tarjil Imam for saying that Assam and the Northeast should be separated from India uh, and then on the other hand you have these very clear instances of what we might call hate speech now coming from political leaders um during the Delhi elections um there's the yeah. home minister stated about you know pressing the button so hard that it would send a shock to Shaheen Bagh uh the minister of state for finance is actually chanted that they should be shot and paraphrasing of course i don't want to repeat the same slogan that he said um so mm-hmm. it's in that context that i would actually like to have a discussion about freedom of expression that's enshrined under article 19.1 and the safeguards outlined in 19.2 um it's not an absolute right it comes with many safeguards um so my question to you uh, abina first is whether these safeguards need to come under review now and um what i mean by that is do we really need to hone down on you know definitions of things like morality like security of state under which um, statements by civil society and politicians can be chargeable or do we need to open up it op- open it up now and understand that in the times that we live in in the times that we find ourselves in um there will be a range of opinions that find their way into so- public discourse and some of them might make us uncomfortable so abinav will you take that first Sure, you know that's a very interesting question, because the Constitution was at its heart also a historical document. It yeah. was enacted in a historical context. Uh, the historical context of the enactment of the Indian Constitution was the partition of the country and the vast and large-scale communal rioting that took place as a consequence of the partition of the country. So it was in that context that the Constitution was being debated and that the first an amendment to the uh, Indian Constitution was enacted. uh interestingly the first amendment to the american constitution is the amendment that creates the right to freedom of speech in the us whereas the first amendment to the indian constitution introduced various restrictions additional restrictions to the right to free speech in india while also making uh, those restrictions subject to the test of reasonableness but the question you ask is a very interesting one because the conditions that prevailed at the time of the partition of india and at the time of the enactment of the indian constitution really no longer exist today so what were the questions that the framers of the indian constitution were really worried about they were worried about things like communal rioting uh, in a charged environment an environment that was created and brought about by the influx of a large number of refugees in india those circumstances no longer exist today so when uh, let's say something like public order was introduced as an exception uh, to the freedom of speech and expression uh, as a result of the first amendment to the indian constitution that was enacted in a very different context so today uh, if you look at the judgment of justice uh, nariman uh, of the indian supreme court in shreya singhal's case i think that's a really very interesting judgment 
where Justice Nariman says that, look, we have to adopt the test that was used by the American Supreme Court in the case of Brandenburg, uh, where the distinction between advocacy and incitement was really uh, highlighted. And Justice Nariman says that, look, as so long as you advocate a certain point of view, that's fine. Uh, that's not really, uh, that can't be considered to fall foul of the right to freedom of speech and expression. But once you incite something, incite the commission of an offense, once you incite somebody to take up arms against the government or something like that, then that's when the, your speech isn't really afforded any protection. Um, so that's something that I find very interesting, that perhaps the law doesn't necessarily reflect today. Right. Um, Mehra, do you, do you want to address this? Yes, I completely uh, agree with Abhinav and coincidentally that's uh, that's something that I also uh, wanted to start with so I'm not going to dwell too much on that but just to just to uh, put it a little in my own words um the constitution was enacted at a time of what I would call great insecurity in the country you know in term it is very much a document of nation building at a time when we were insecure about whether or not this project, this experiment of ours as a nation would ever succeed, whether we would come together as a nation state. So to be uh, relying on those insecurities today, I think does a disservice to the intention that the framers of the constitution had. Uh, I think something that is coming up uh, today, which is, uh, which is, you know, to do more with the present government than anything else, and it's worrying, is that earlier you had perhaps a very clear distinction between uh, political speech and the kind of restrictions on political speech, whether it's public order or sedition or any of those things, and uh, speech that was related to or offensive to anybody's religious sentiments. And you had you had a very different kind of jurisprudence on both of them. But I think today with the with the kind of campaigning um, that the government is doing and the kind of vote bank um, that it, it appears to be um, catering to, uh, you have a situation where the, uh, you know, speech pertaining to religion and, and causing offense to religion or taking offense on behalf of a particular religion is actually conflated with political speech. And I think that is taking us into very uh, new and uncharted territories as far as freedom of speech is concerned. Okay. Um, and, you know, in, in relation to political speech itself, um, so for instance, how do you think we should now consider a statement like, say, uh, the one made by the, the Home Minister? Because there has to be a threshold at which we say, right, this this does, uh, this can be chargeable, this does cross the line. Uh, or should we, do you think that, you know, we should, we should now um, accept that that's, uh, we should be, we should learn to be okay with it? You know, if I can jump in. Uh, yeah, I, sure. I, don't want to, I don't want to comment on any statement made by any particular individual. Sure, but I think sure. um, that the test which you've asked for, I think that that we need to really draw the line. Uh, at the, I, I, or let me put it this way, that the great test that was used by a judge called Oliver Wendell Holmes of the US Supreme Court was that, look, the greatest protection of free speech will not protect a man who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater. Now, you see, a person who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater immediately by his words induces a panic. In other words, you can't argue with the man who shouts fire in a crowded theater. But if there is some scope for argument, if there is some scope for debate, then I think that no matter how uh, inflammatory somebody's uh, speech might uh, appear to be, 
if there is scope for argument then i think that speech should be allowed that's not to say that what somebody is saying is right but if you can argue with a person if you can debate with a person then i think that that person's point of view should be allowed and then you should be allowed to say what you want to counter uh, what that person has said so really that brings us back to the test that justice nariman has articulated on advocacy <coughs> incitement that look so long as you are able to advocate a point of view and debate and discuss with each other then really there's no reason to prevent uh, a person from saying what he wants even though you might not find that speech to be palatable um can i can i just respond to that uh, uh, no. jan um you know i think as i said before i think we are in uncharted territory here and you know i completely uh, agree with uh, with everything that abhinav has said in terms of whether or not something can be debated and that should be the test um however we are also in a situation where it's not it's it's a it's a very one sided debate uh one side you know controls uh, a lot of the media controls a lot of um, you know public expenditure on advertisements and things like that and in that situation um how to what extent do these rules apply is is not something i'm very sure of and um you know when it comes to a statement like the home minister's speech uh, pertaining to shaheen bag or or you know others of this nature i don't think the framers of the constitution even when they were talking about uh, you know offense to religious sentiments or other restrictions um really anticipated what we are seeing in some of these speeches today which is the the speech of of dog whistles coded speech that is not by itself um threatening or offensive or doesn't even necessarily pertain to a specified community except everyone knows exactly what is being referred to and the question of incitement again then becomes very complicated because when you keep uh when you keep making such speech you keep referring insidiously um to a particular community and you keep talking about you know perceived historical wrongs uh perpetrated on one community by another is there is there ground to create a new jurisprudence of cumulative incitement or you know kind of um adding uh in incitement not so much directly by particular words but by building it up over a period of time i think that's something that uh, that we need to think about it's it's extremely tricky but i think the kind of speech we're seeing today politically publicly is not something that was anticipated you know and uh, if uh, i uh, jump, yeah if if i jump sure. in here well i think that 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 is a very interesting point because uh, at some level um, you know you are right uh, the, the test should be that can you debate with somebody and can you reason with somebody but at the same time uh, that draws us into the very tricky uh, issue of hate speech uh, because what is um, what are laws that uh, prevent hate speech designed to do really they designed to prevent the dehumanization of an entire community or an entire people because at the end of the day that's really what happened in a place like nazi germany right uh, the people who uh, operated those concentration camps did not actually believe that uh, jews were human beings um, you know when uh, somebody uh, recently who was asked who uh, was an accountant i believe at one of those concentration camps when he was asked well you know didn't you didn't you feel bad about the children why were the children being sent to these camps and he said well you know you have they have the same blood Uh, so so clearly he didn't see uh, even the children Jew, jewish children to be human beings uh, that of course is extremely dangerous 
so you can of course debate with somebody who tries to dehumanize an entire commune community or an entire population um so 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 it it would not fall foul of the fire in a crowded theater test but uh, we have to really ask ourselves as a society as a community uh, as a country as a nation um whether really we want to uh, allow hate speech uh, you see that that the the us um, uh, model is that we allow everything so even nazi protests are permitted uh, in the us you are allowed to use words that are highly loaded and highly hurtful uh, words like the n word whereas in india for example we've got the schedule caste and schedule tribes atrocities prevention of atrocities act uh, which prevent uh, hurtful speech uh, so we've really mm -hmm. gone the path of the i guess the european uh, model which is to say that hate speech is really not going to be tolerated here even though it may uh, put a dampener on uh, on debate and discussion and and dissent of course i don't want to say anything about any particular comment made by any leader or or individual so i'm not i'm not saying that uh, any speech that has been made is or is not hate speech i'm of course speaking more generally another another interesting um, uh, and relevant aspect to this is the is the argument of a speech that you know punches down rather than punches up um which is to say that in defining hate speech or defining what kind of uh, speech uh, even offensive speech perhaps can be permitted or not permitted uh one test relevant test really is to look at uh, whether the speech is uh, addressing or attacking a community that is oppressed or a community that is dominant and who is making that speech and who is it addressed to and whether we want that kind of relativism um in our assessment of what kind of speech should be allowed because surely there is a difference uh between uh speech being made from a dominant uh, or perhaps even oppressive community directed downwards um and subversive speech that is coming up from the most oppressed communities Okay um there's some really great ideas that are being tossed around here by both of you and i just wanted to get um your opinions on have uh, how, how to what extent have the courts actually debated th these definitions and how they might change do you do you find that satisfactory um uh, meera maybe you want to go first and abhinav can follow sure no i don't find i don't really find it uh, find it satisfactory i don't i don't think that the courts have really kept up with the kind of speech that is um uh, you know in currency um today and how social speech public discourse is evolving we have um, um a youth population today that is extremely high and i don't think that the judiciary is necessarily um uh, well equipped or has it shows that it has made a lot of effort to understand that kind of speech the kind of speech that is popular internet culture social media there's a lot more going on um and i think our jurisprudence on free speech uh, particularly in terms of speech that is offensive radical subversive um you know which is really speech that does tend to come more from the youth than anywhere else um i don't think that that sort of uh, subculture has been looked at at all and you know just to add to that i think that there's a, a some amount of confusion in the courts about what speech should be entitled to protection under article 191a and there appears to be this misconception and i think that the supreme court has uh, in some cases fallen into this trap um, in a recent judgment uh, i believe that the uh, 
Bombay High Court has also fallen into this trap. Um, and that is that the courts believe that, look, when a person earns money by making his speech, uh, that speech should not be protected. Now, that's a very dangerous uh, proposition because, you see, everybody who uh, makes a living by speaking, um, you know, or, or, or let me put it this way, a painter makes money by painting a, a picture, uh, an author makes money by selling books, a filmmaker makes money by selling and producing movies. Uh, so merely because you're making money out of the endeavor that can be considered speech does not mean that you're not entitled or that you should not be entitled to freedom of speech and expression. Of course, if you are advertising something, uh, then that takes you into the domain of commercial speech, which now the Supreme Court has held is still entitled to uh, some of the protections of free speech, perhaps not to the greatest extent. Uh, but there is some confusion, I think, in the courts about what constitutes speech that is entitled to protection. I just want to add to that, uh, you know, there's uh, two other, uh, two other uh, misconceptions that appear to have taken, taken root in, in society, um, at least, and in public discourse. And to some extent, I think the judiciary also falls into the trap of, uh, of speaking in, in those terms. Uh, one is that, you know, speech shouldn't be offensive. And that's extremely problematic. I mean, if speech wasn't going to be offensive or if speech was uh, going to be completely palatable uh, to everybody, then you wouldn't really need, uh, you know, protection for freedom of speech at all. The reason it's there is because people are going to say things that other people don't like. So speech can be offensive and freedom of speech is there to protect actually offensive speech. And, you know, secondly, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of um, misconception around um, the the aspect of reasonable restriction because it has now come to be seen as a situation where a state and a citizen are seen as equal competing entities where the reasonable restriction is seen as a balancing right on the part of the state to balance the, the speech um, on the part of the citizen. And that's not true. The onus on the state to prove that the restriction is reasonable is, is not an onus that is matched by any onus on a citizen to show that the speech is reasonable, right? We need to keep that in mind. The restriction has to be reasonable. The speech can be totally unreasonable. Okay. Um, I'd just like to steer the conversation into um, a slightly different direction. I think you had brought it up, Mira, in, in, because I was going to refer to uh, the right to offend and be offended. And in this context, I want to you know, bring up the US model, because I think in common perception, this is one of the areas in which the US, for instance, uh, contrasts with India the most. Because, you know, political satire on comedy shows is widespread. It has protections. I think that's one of the ways in which a lot of people know about or learn about things that are happening in the US government through comedy shows. Um, we, on the other hand, seem to be going down this route where everyone is extremely quick to take offense to any humor on politics or community and demanding that offenders be brought to book. Again, I go back to the point about, you know, widening the debate during these times. Uh, is there is there a point where we say, OK, we should sort of adopt a little bit more of the American model? Uh, would that actually do you think that might actually help in, you know, just having a little bit more of a, you know, humorous conversation about politics sometimes? That Absolutely. It, and I'm glad you brought in humor. Because, you know, we, we need to take ourselves, you know, I think it's, it's, not, it's not something superficial. We need to take ourselves um, less seriously 
we need for our uh, ruling class politicians judges and other authorities to take themselves less seriously because that is ultimately also part of uh, you know a culture where they feel they are accountable to us rather than our lord and master you know right. so it, humor in that sense is a great leveler and for us to not permit that in our public discourse when it comes to our public authorities uh, is is a great tragedy for this country you know if i can weigh in on this uh, subject uh, i think that uh, a large amount of the trouble with our laws that concern speech and expression is that these laws are criminal laws uh, let's take the example for instance of sedition let's assume that you're a stand up comic and that you make fun of somebody who's in a position of power what the police in that uh, in the state in which you're located have the power to do now uh, and when i say now i mean after the the enactment of the criminal procedure code of 1973 uh, the police can essentially register an fir against you knowing fully well that that that's not sedition right what is sedition sedition is when you incite people to take up arms against the government or to violently overthrow the government this definition has been around for decades but what the police and the government can do is that they can register an fir against you once an fir is registered against you you can be arrested if you are arrested you essentially have to well before you are arrested you probably want to go into hiding you want to approach a court for anticipatory bail if the anticipatory bail is rejected then you are in deep trouble or if you are arrested you have to approach a court for bail and since these are all uh, since sedition is a non bailable offence as we lawyers say uh, you have to really ask for the for bail at the discretion of the court and that bail may or may not be granted on some conditions and eventually though you might succeed in a petition to quash the fir or you might succeed at the end of the trial you see the threat of being of spending even a night in jail in police custody is has an extremely dampening and chilling effect on free speech so if you were a stand up comic even though you know what the law of sedition is even though everybody really knows what the law of sedition is you're going to think 10 times before making fun of uh, a person in in power you're going to think 10 times before drawing a cartoon that lampoons the uh, powers that be because you know that the police might register an fir against you and mind you this was not the law even in british india which is the real irony the british of course gave us a law of sedition which was much harsher than the law as it existed on the statute books in the uk for example sedition in the uk was considered to be a bailable offence meaning when somebody complained against you that you had committed sedition you were entitled to be released on bail as a matter of right the british made it a non bailable offence in india uh, a sedition was punishable with a few years in imprisonment whereas the british uh, under the indian penal code made it uh, punishable with much more with a much higher sentence so of course the british discriminated against us but they made it a non cognizable offence in other words Uh, if if somebody complained that you had committed sedition the police would require an order of a magistrate in order to investigate the case or to arrest you but for the first time indira gandhi's government in 1974 with the enactment of the criminal procedure code made sedition a cognizable offence for the first time in the history of independent india so now the police can arrest you without a warrant from a magistrate they can investigate the case without an order from a magistrate and that's what makes sedition extremely dangerous and that's what according to me has a dampening and chilling effect on the freedom of speech of comedians and and uh, satirists right so is the is the sedition law also according to you mera the first uh, obstacle the first step that needs to be addressed absolutely and i think uh, more so in the current environment uh, where you know uh, 
you you have a government that uh, you know tries to polarize public discourse on the basis of national and anti-national and right. and that's the that's the sort of yardstick for everything then you obviously are creating a situation where the the sedition uh, section um is, is is going to come into full force and it it it's, it's something that uh, you know whether whether the courts uh, are you know at the supreme court level certainly but lower courts the police and in india the process is very much the punishment uh so so you know we need to we need to also be aware that free speech restrictions don't just come from legislations on behalf of the government we also need to understand down to the lowest level of our law enforcement and judiciary the concept of what is chilling effect and how that is inimical to uh, to our democracy and that's where i i you know i think i have i have my uh, you know coming back to your earlier question about uh, whether the courts have kept up with with these ideas and this kind of jurisprudence uh, you know perhaps only at the higher levels and you know if i can add something here as well uh, i think what's really interesting is that um, we we need to have a relook uh, at the law on injunctions on interim injunctions when it, it comes to defamation cases now let's say that you're a stand up comic and you make fun of somebody either a politician or let's say a person in a in the corporate world and a, 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 a lawsuit is filed against you asking for you know hundreds of crores as these lawsuits are typically filed especially in a place like the bombay high court when where you don't have to pay an ad valorem court fee in other words you don't have to pay a court fee that's commensurate with the value of the damages that you ask for you can essentially ask for 500 crores and pay the same amount of court fee of 3 lakh rupees now you see what happens in these cases is that at least the law in england some time ago was that where a defendant comes to court and says that look allow me to justify what i have said at the trial in other words where he takes up the plea of justification uh, and says that look i have sufficient material with me please allow me to justify what i have said at the trial then no interim injunction is granted uh, whereas i believe that our courts are now moving away from this at least the bombay high court in, in recent judgments has moved away from this principle and the court now insists that no no the plea of justification is not tenable you really have to establish that what you've said is truthful even at the interim stage um i guess a lot of this has to do with the fact that trials in india take a very long time so i think courts are also alive to the fact that if we allow the plea of justification if we allow defendants to um to 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 not get an interim injunction simply on the basis of their statement that they can justify what they have said at trial then that will essentially allow people to say whatever they want whenever they want because really no injunction would ever be issued uh, because trials take really so long right um so i think i think it's been a great discussion so far and i think i think a good place to end perhaps is just to ask um what would be the kind of action that would uh, occasion a broader debate on these issues of the type that you know we are having in this podcast but um does it does it require a pil of some sort i'm i'm only i'm only asking because um it it's clear that there there needs to be something done because we, we the times that we live in we can't do much about but um i think we are increasingly heading down this rabbit hole of trying to pigeonhole you know different safeguards to different things that people say and then you know getting into that morass so what is the kind of action that could actually uh, lead us to a larger more constructive debate you know to be to be honest i'm not a big fan of uh, law making by courts and pils because right. i feel at some level uh, if an actual litigant is not before a court 
it becomes very hard for a court to commiserate with uh, the plight of the individual um, in, in the facts and circumstances of a particular case. So when a case comes up uh, before a court and there are actual facts before the court, I think the law that's laid down tends to typically be better than just judicial lawmaking uh, in a PIL. So I don't think necessarily that the right way to go is to have uh, you know, the judiciary in a PIL lay down a set of guidelines almost like a legislation. Because also uh, bear in mind that when parliament legislates, if parliament makes a mistake, we can go to a court and we can say that, look, this is unconstitutional. It violates Article 19.1a or 14 or, the, or a whole host of uh, fundamental rights. But when the court legislates, if there's something in that legislation uh, by the court that, uh, that somebody wants to challenge, there's no real option because you can't uh, approach a court and say that, look, the law laid down by the Supreme Court under Article 142 violates my fundamental rights. That's just not a possible argument. So I think perhaps um, I'm not, you know, as I said earlier, a big fan of uh, judicial legislation. I think each, uh, uh, each branch of government needs to stick to its own territory, really. Right. Um, and Meera, do you want to uh, end with something on that? No, I, I completely agree with Abhinav on that point, as, as uh, you know, disheartening as it may sound to think that uh, we don't really have an option but to wait for Parliament to want to do something about this, which I have very little hope uh, about, hope for. Uh, but I do agree with Abhinav that the Supreme Court certainly should not be in the business of lawmaking here, and it comes with a lot of pitfalls to be relying um, you know, on that institution alone. So I think it's really just a question of uh, waiting for uh, better politics in this country. Right, okay. Um, so we, we'll end it at that. I'd like to thank you both for joining us and for making time. I think that was actually a really constructive and interest, an interesting discussion. So uh, thank you both. Thank, thank you, you Jeff. Thanks, Abhinav. I had a lovely time. Thank you, likewise.